Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kettler. And this is episode 33 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 18th of September. Leon, what have we got on the schedule for this week? Well, Gary, we have a fantastic interview with a very high-profile analyst from overseas, Chris Martinson, and he's a specialist in oil and gas prices. So he's going to be talking to us all about that. Yep, forecasting where, where it's going. It oil, oil may go up and down a little bit, but it's always going to go up. That's right. And then uh, we're going to talk to Saul Eslake about what are the chances of us drifting into a recession? Yeah, very interesting. Saul's uh, got a finger on that one. So let's listen to um, Chris Martinson and uh, what's on the cards for oil. Chris Martinson, what's your outlook for oil prices at the moment? They were going down, they picked up a bit, but what, what do you see ahead? Well, over the long term, they have nowhere to go but up. And that's a, an easy prediction to make because, you know, if you travel anywhere in the world, I'm sure in Melbourne you would see this, but you go to Lima, Peru, you'll see this, Beijing, you'll see this. People are driving cars, often to the point of congesting the roadways, 24-7, 365, we're burning oil. Oil requires at least 100 to $120 a barrel to get new stuff out of the ground. And that means that the marginal cost of production is still about twice uh, where we are currently. Therefore, oil has to go up. Over the short term, who knows, right? Demand, supply, all that. Uh, I'm watching the global economy very carefully. If the global economy goes into the into the dumpster, we would expect to see uh, oil to stay suppressed for quite a while. But barring that, imagining we get back to economic growth, oil can only go higher. Will the events in the Middle East have any impact on it? Well, they, they very well should have, and I thought they would have had more by now. Uh, you know, with Saudi Arabia getting uh, mixed up with what's happening down in Yemen, Saudi Arabia is in an, its own power struggle. It's a little bit precarious what's happening there. Listen, if anything happened to even temporarily shut down the Strait of Hormuz, uh, we would see an immediate and, and very violent reaction in the price of oil. Because, you know, all this stuff about too much oil, surpluses, all of this, there's a very slight surplus of about a million, million and a half barrels a day. If you lose the Strait of Hormuz, you lose about 17 million barrels a day that don't come through there. Game over. It's a big change. Will there be a shale oil bus? Well, there already is one. It's happening. Uh, it should have happened earlier. So shale oil was, was uh, you know, uh, let me puncture a myth. It wasn't technology that unlocked shale oil. It was price. You know, we've had horizontal drilling for four decades. We've had fracking for probably six decades. Uh, these are not new technologies. They've been improved, but ultimately the cost of, of getting the stuff out of the ground has to be exceeded by the price at which you sell it for and, and the ultimate revenues. Uh, oil coming out of shale is still not profitable at these prices on average. Chris, one of the things that exercised me a bit is uh, there must be a crossover point as oil gets more expensive as we look for more of it, uh, and then you get into renewables and other sources. Is there such a crossover point? Well, it's going to be very far in the future. To, to be clear, there's not a single renewable yet that replaces oil. Uh, renewables, when we're talking about that solar, wind, geothermal, wave power, uh, what have you, none of those create a liquid fuel. So oil is irreplaceable because we use 70% of it for transportation. 30% of it is a feedstock to make plastics, uh, petroleum products, derivatives, pesticides, the like. So there's not a single renewable yet that, that provides any of those feedstocks. It's an irreplaceable substance for modern life. And uh, however, as we see the price of oil track higher, 
and higher, it will create uh, additional pressure on other fuel types, natural gas, and then coal, which if those go high enough, then, then you know, you'll see actual competition from renewables, which I'm very hopeful for. I, I'm really disappointed that renewables have been um, hamstrung in relation simply to the price of fossil fuels. That's very short-sighted. It's not what we should be doing at this stage at all. So when do you see renewables providing real competition? Well, you know, on an electric basis, they already kind of do, depending. I mean, in Hawaii, uh, they make a lot of sense. On other island nations, they make a lot of sense. Uh, if we were going to, as a society, as a culture, uh, manage to put the all-in cost of fossil fuels, which includes uh, not just the potential pollution issues that happen when we put all the effluent into the atmosphere, not just what happens, you know, when we accidentally spill it every so often, but the full cost, the full cost, of fossil fuels is actually very, very high. So, for instance, when you burn coal, mercury is released, uh, a bunch of other toxic heavy metals, uh, a variety of soot particulates that go into the air and, and, and cause a lot of deaths and, and uh, diseases and things like that. Uh, so there are really, actually, if we took the whole cost of fossil fuels, they would be much, much higher, but we don't. Worse, they're subsidized to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, that creates a very unlevel playing field. So if we're waiting for market forces to say, tell me when a cost of a kilowatt hour from renewables will ex- you know, be exceeded by the cost of fossil fuels, that's the magic market tipping point, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be waiting a long time for that to happen, longer than we actually have. Are there any implications with the uh, U.S. strategy in the Ukraine from all of this? Well, I do believe that, you know, what we're reading about in the paper around what's happening in Ukraine, listen, the United States doesn't care about democracy or whether it flourishes in Ukraine or not. And and uh, there's a, a larger geopolitical game afoot. Russia happens to be the premier supplier of natural gas to Europe. Europe is past peak on natural gas and also oil. And so Europe is not only dependent on Russian gas, but will be increasingly dependent as time goes on. So there was a great game afoot by the United States, other Western powers, to see if they could uh, somehow box Russia in to get better prices. It's all mercantilism, I believe, when you get down to it. The the blowback, unfortunately, was that Russia's got a bunch of smart players. They're not pushovers like a Gaddafi or Saddam. So what happened was uh, Russia started playing another game. And, of course, Russia's not going to allow fascism and uh, other things to arise right on its border. It saw what happened in World War II. (laughs) It was not happy with the result from that at all. Uh, plus, there's a lot of Russian-speaking people in eastern Ukraine. So, so Russia had a set of compelling interests just on the, on the political domestic front. We're going to protect Russian-speaking people made sense. What didn't make sense was the West really pushing Russia to try and get Russia to capitulate into a set of things that would basically have seen Russia fold uh, like another cheap, small country, and, and Russia wasn't willing to do that. The blowback has started. Russia has aligned itself with China, increasingly signed two mega deals to ship uh, Russian gas to China. Europe has to be concerned at this point. I know you're not reading about it in the paper, but believe me, behind the scenes, this is happening. So what, what are the implications of that deal for the global economy? Well, the global economy is uh, on, on somewhat fragile footing, right? The United States turned in basically a zero reading on first quarter growth. China, I think, is worse than advertised. Uh, you know, they're not getting 7% growth. Come on. Look at their uh, electricity generation usage has slipped. Import exports both suggest that they're actually in retraction, not expansion. Uh, Japan, obviously not doing well. Europe, all that. So the global economy is basically frozen at this point, teetering. And any additional conflict with Russia is obviously not going to help that situation out at all. It's, it's, very, it's quite precarious. 
so what are your oil and gas industry trend predictions for 2015? Well, I, 2015, I, I think we're going to see a little bit more of the same. I, I'm basically expecting we're going to wobble between 50 and 70 uh, a barrel uh, on the world stage. That could change, obviously, if we have a, a, a scenario or event in the Middle East. Uh, but that's basically where I'm seeing the global economy on the demand side. Supply side, obviously, uh, we have a lot of producers producing what they can. 2015 isn't as interesting to me as 16, 17. Look, even in February of 2014, all the international oil companies were either freezing or cutting their capex. That was with oil at 110 a barrel. Now that, you know, we're at half that, we're seeing all these projects get mothballed. Those are essential to future supply. The world's conventional and existing oil fields are depleting at about three and a half to four million barrels per day per year. We have to replace those. If we don't, future supplies will not be there. Uh, I'm predicting that in a couple of years, we're going to, if the world economy in particular comes back, we're going to have serious, serious uh, shortfalls in supply. And how will that affect other commodities like, say, iron ore and copper? Perversely, it, it, it it, it may not be quite the way we think. So iron ore and copper were really boosted by this extraordinary build-out period that China went through. It's never been repeated in history or seen before. They basically were building... uh, China, at at the peak, was moving 20 million people a month from the inland to the coast. That's like building a Houston every month. They did that for years on end. That boom seems to be over. I don't predict that the the China building market is going to come back for years because of all the excess capacity they have. Could be wrong about that. Uh, So I'm looking for things like cement, iron ore, and copper to to track generally the Chinese building market for a little while, which is to say not robust. On the other hand, if we do have a spike in energy prices, particularly around oil, that makes mining just a little bit more costly. Uh, so so it could be a little bit of a squeeze there. Which, uh, which would also be reflected in the prices of iron ore. Well, eventually, but there's vast overcapacity right now. And this is classic commodity boom-bust cycle. It always happens. Corn goes up to $9 a bushel. Corn gets planted everywhere. Uh, we can follow the rhythm of that. It's easier because it only takes a year or two for that to play out. But, but iron ore is something where, you know, when you put a mine in production, the upfront capital cost means that there's about, you know, five, six, seven, ten-year lag time on the front end. But also turning it off, there's a very long lag period. Those lag periods exacerbate these price swings. So I, I think we're a bit well supplied with iron ore for the foreseeable future. Which will keep a lid on the price. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. The pleasure's been mine. Thank you. Oil's a finite thing, I guess, Leon, and uh, what goes up will keep on going up. I know, I know. And, of course, it's all dependent on the global economy and demand from places like China and stuff like that. So that feeds into it as well. And in the end, of course, as Chris makes a point, that oil ultimately is too precious to burn in a car. That's right. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, now Saul and uh, what's uh, going on in the economy. So, Les, like we've had all sorts of predictions of the world falling into recession. Uh, uh, Citigroup has forecast a 55% chance of a global recession. Goldman Sachs put out a notice last week saying Australia had a one in three chance of sliding into a recession. The economic data hasn't been that good. Uh, What's your view of it? Well, the chance of us falling into recession again, either globally or here in Australia, is not zero. But I think those percentages that you've quoted are higher than I would put them at. Uh, Although 
when we look at the global economy, there's been a lot of attention devoted to the slowing in China and in some other Asian economies. And also because it's relevant to Australia, the recessions that countries such as Canada and Brazil have fallen into. Uh, that commentary seems to have underestimated the improving performance in the United States and the UK and the gradual improvement that we're also seeing in the Eurozone economy. If I put those two things together, then I don't have a strong sense that the world economy is teetering on the brink of a recession. I do think it's continuing to grow at a trend that's well below the norm in the decade before the onset of the financial crisis. And I suspect the rotation away from emerging markets back to developed or industrialised economies will at the margin be negative for the Australian economy. But I just simply think these fears of a new global recession or a new global financial crisis are much exaggerated. Uh, when we turn to the Australian context, I said just over two years ago that I thought there was a 25% chance that Australia might experience a recession in 2015 or 2016 as mining investment began to wind down quite sharply. Mining investment is winding down quite sharply, but Although we haven't seen a compensating uptick in investment in other sectors of the economy, I think we are seeing enough growth, particularly in employment, to make the chance of Australia falling into recession in the absence of any kind of external or unforeseen shock from the global economy, at no more than 25%, and in my view, probably a bit less than that. Certainly the latest uh, employment figures surprised to surprise everyone. Uh, well, yes, they have surprised many people. And at first glance, to think that we could be seeing employment growth of one and a half to two percent per annum in circumstances where real GDP growth is at two percent per annum seems hard to understand. Uh, I think there are a number of plausible explanations. Uh, the continued softness in real wages growth may be encouraging a substitution of labour for capital. Uh, I think the most plausible explanation is that what we're seeing is a rotation in the sources of growth away from the most capital intensive form of economic activity known to mankind, namely mining, towards much more labour intensive forms of economic activity, such as dwelling construction, tourism, and a range of other personal services. Now, those sectors all have lower levels of labour productivity than mining, which is as well as being capital intensive, a sector where labour productivity is traditionally very high. And that helps to reconcile the apparent divergence between GDP growth and employment growth, that we can reconcile that by noting that labour productivity growth is also very weak. Now, from a long-term point of view, low productivity growth means low income growth as well. And that's what we're also experiencing. But at least it is doing something to put a lid on unemployment, where Australia had stood out over the last three years as being one of only a very small number of industrialised economies where the unemployment rate was going up rather than down. And although the unemployment rate does appear to have stabilised just above 6%, we do nonetheless have a higher unemployment rate than the UK, the US and New Zealand. And that's not a position that we've been in very often over the last 15 or so years. Citigroup was saying that uh, the recession, as they said, will be 
brought on by China slowing down. What's your view about that? Well, I certainly don't dispute that China's economy is slowing. It had been doing 10% per annum on average for 30 years until the onset of the financial crisis. And now the officially measured growth rate is running at 7%. And the underlying or real growth rate may well be a bit less than that. The Part of the problem we have in gauging what's going on in China is the lack of reliable, authoritative economic statistics that are generally accepted as being free of official manipulation. Another problem is, though, that we don't have a lot of statistics on those areas of the Chinese economy which probably are growing at a more rapid pace, particularly in services. Now, we've known for a long time that it's been an objective of the Chinese authorities to redirect its growth away from fixed investment and exports, which are fairly easy to measure, towards household consumption and services, where growth is usually inherently slower than in fixed investment and exports, but also harder to measure. And that problem hasn't been ameliorated by the introduction of new statistical series. You certainly don't see a lot of unrest in China of the sort that you might if the economy was slowing to the point where the unemployment rate was rising or people's expectations regarding future incomes were being disappointed. We have seen that sort of social unrest in China in the past during periods of very weak economic growth. So my view is that China's economy is certainly slowing. It may well have slowed more than the official statistics indicate, but the chance of China having the sort of hard landing that would in turn bring on a global recession to me seems fairly small. And although the confidence that people have previously expressed in the ability of the Chinese authorities to achieve whatever economic outcome they nominate has been undermined by the failure of their attempts to put a floor under the stock market and the bungled way in which they handled the most recent change to their currency setting regime. Uh, Nonetheless, you'd still, I think, have to acknowledge that the Chinese authorities have a fair bit of scope to use economic policy, both monetary and fiscal policy, in order to shore up growth if they really need to. Generally, what you're saying is that we just have to get used to slower growth. Is that right? (laughs) That is part of what others refer to as the new normal, yes. And this reflects a combination of things. Uh, Yes, there are lingering effects of the global financial crisis that are going to be with us for some time yet. There's a considerable body of economic research that's been built up that says, I think quite convincingly, that the recoveries that follow from recessions induced by banking crises or housing busts are always slower and more protracted than the recoveries that come after your garden variety recessions that have been induced by a period of very high interest rates. Uh, So that's part of the story. Demographic change is part of the story, including in China, where the population, or at least the working age population, is now declining as a result of the one-child policy that's been pursued since the late 1970s. And of course, declining working age populations are also a key reason for sluggish economic growth in Japan and in some other European economies. And Even in Australia, slowing population growth as a result of a lower migration intake is going to be a more important part of our economic picture in the next few years than it has been for the last 15. Uh, There is also the issue of uh, high levels of debt in the household sectors of most Western economies, including Australia, that will be an ongoing 
restraint on economic growth. And then finally, there's the very important but unresolved question as to to what extent can technological change and innovation deliver ongoing rapid economic growth in the way that it did from the mid-1990s until just before the onset of the financial crisis. Uh, No one's disputing, least of all me, that there's a rapid rate of technological change occurring, and it's probably going to continue for some time. But an unresolved question is whether that technological change is going to boost economic growth and employment, albeit in different areas from where we've seen employment grow in the past, or whether it is going to be disruptive on a macro macro scale and result potentially in lower economic growth and employment, especially in advanced economies. That's a question on which there's a variety of views and no clear, unambiguous answers. So how long do you expect us to be in this subpar growth regime? It could be five or 10 years. Uh, And in Australia, where we've had four years of below trend growth, there's no compelling reason to think in the next 12 to 24 months that we're going to see a significant pickup in the rate of economic growth. Certainly the decline in the currency to what is now clearly a below average level, taking the average since the float in December 1983 of 76 cents as an important benchmark, we're now well below that, that is going to have a stimulatory impact on economic activity. On the other hand, ongoing fiscal restraint at the federal level, uh, slowing growth Uh, in China and the change in the mix of Chinese growth in a way that's probably unfavourable to Australia's resources sector will be a drag on growth. And it's probable that the impact of the falls in interest rates that have occurred over the last six months and really since late 2011, uh, some of that stimulatory effect is likely to wear off as well. So there's every reason to think that the kind of growth rates Australia's been experiencing over the last two or three years are a reasonable guide to what we can expect over the next two or three years. So, Les, like, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me once again. So what do you think, Leon? He is a bit guarded about these predictions of recessions and stuff like that. He can see tough times ahead. What he's saying is we're headed for a period of low subpar growth for at least a few years. A lot of that, I think, you know, lay view, but a lot of that, I think, is public confidence in Australia has been shattered in the last two years. I think so. I think so. Too. And with Turnbull's, Turnbull's arrival on the scene, we're expecting a lot, whether he delivers a lot or not. The backlash may be there, but at the moment, it's pretty good. Well, yes, but let's wait and see, as you say. Now, uh, that which brings us to this week's news, Gary, and First of all, Australia is expected to have a new treasurer following Malcolm Turnbull's successful leadership challenge. Now, in the lead-up to Monday night's vote, Treasurer Joe Hockey gave a savage press conference where he declared the loyalty of some has been outrageous, in in effect making it clear he could not work with Mr Turnbull. Now, Mr Turnbull first shadowed changes in ministerial arrangements. Joe Hockey is tipped to be the top casualty and is likely to be replaced by Social Services Minister Scott Morrison. But a cabinet reshuffle is not expected until this weekend, so we wait and see what's unveiled for us on Monday. But Joe was never could never have been a contender, just not on. No. Say all he likes, but he wasn't then. No, no. I mean, Joe was too closely linked with Abbott. 
Now, at the same time, Turnbull has the opportunity to positively influence business and consumer confidence in the short term. There's been a general lack of optimism around government sometime, for some time. And when the coalition came to government, business confidence surged to a three-year high, but it's been unable to maintain that level. It's currently below average. Now, economists say that to sustain any elevation in confidence, Turnbull's leadership will need to triumph over populism. He'll need to provide a credible strategy to lift the productive capacity and competitiveness of the Australian economy. And I might add that the more recent Morgan Snap poll, which put him at 70 percent to Bill Shorten's 24 percent. A lot's going to depend upon how he and his uh, ministry tell it to the public, ask for their understanding and their support. That's right. But underpinning that is the strength of the coalition. And the reality is the Nationals were very unhappy when Turnbull got the leadership because they had a deal with Tony Abbott. And so what happened was they extracted a huge price for supporting the leadership of Malcolm Turnbull with a commitment from him that there'll be no change in carbon prices for the duration of his Prime Ministership. There'll be social measures set to be worth between $2 billion and $4 billion, and a massive win for small business on competition policies. Now, the Nationals scored major wins, including an about-face on the effects test in competition legislation, which the Abbott government had rejected. And Malcolm has given a commitment to no carbon tax, no emissions trading scheme for the life of his Prime Ministership. There's also a commitment that Mr Turnbull will take the already announced targets for emission reduction to Paris and the climate change talks. And also... Barnaby Joyce, the agriculture minister, who said uh, water had been given too much focus on the environment, gets the water portfolio. Which may come back to bite him on the backside. That's right. That's right. Particularly with the Murray-Darling. But uh, that's that's all going to happen. Yeah, of course, you know, it's politics and it can be renegotiated if uh, the climate is right. That's right. Oh, yes. There's also major funding for social measures, including stay-at-home mums, including extending the youth allowance. And there's going to be ongoing funding for mobile phone black spot programs in the bush and maintaining assistance for infrastructure and inland rail. So all of that's handouts for the Nats. Frankly, I I support the um, broadband and mobile thing. It's it's vital to the bush and, and it could make things a lot easier for Turnbull in many ways. That's right. Now to, the, now to the global economy, the OECD has foreshadowed a sharp drop in global trade growth this year. Exports and imports of goods are far lagging behind the pace during past expansions, threatening future productivity and living standards. And for the third year in a row, the rate of growth in global trade is set to trail the already sluggish expansion of the world economy, according to data from the World Trade Organization and projections from leading economists. Now, before the recent slump, the last year uh, trade underperformed during an economic expansion. And economists blame the slowdown on many factors from China's shift away from certain kinds of manufacturing to a decline in international investment. And they also point to a dearth of new big trade agreements and trade barriers erected after the 2008 downturn, as well as a newfound reluctance by companies to source products and comp- components from home. And few see any signs that trade will soon regain its previous pace of growth, which in its peak was double the rate of economic expansion before 2008. I might add that in 2006, global trade volumes were growing 8.5%. They're now growing at uh, 4%. So the world is slowing down for a while. That's right. So the World Trade Organization is expected to cut its 2015 trade forecast for a second time after a sudden contraction in the first half of the year. It's the first such decline since 2009. Everybody was depending too much on China and China's got the squeaks because uh, of what's going on inside it. Well, indeed, China's uh, faltering economy is showing signs that it's not responding to a rash of stimulatory policies and is deteriorating more rapidly than expected, uh, with another disappointing batch of economic data from its industrial heartland. Now, figures released by China's National Bureau of Statistics over the weekend show industrial production growth in August edged up from 6 to 6.1%, but that was well shy of market forecasts of closer to 6.6%. Steel production fell 
fell 3.5% on an annualised basis, which is the second successive months it's dropped. Although some of that can be put down to the government's forced closure of steel mills around Beijing to reduce air pollution. The news was worse in another key driver of the economy, fixed asset investment, which slowed to 10.9% in the months, eight months of August, compared to a forecast of 11.2%. And the investment figure was expected to get a kick along from recent concerted efforts to stimulate the economy, where the Chinese government had cut interest rates and eased bank credits. And these weaker-than-expected data follows recent disappointing trade figures showing a decline in both exports and imports. So that's not good. No, it's not. And also shows China also is dependent on the rest of the world, particularly Europe and America. Well, what they're doing, Gary, is that they they plan to bring private investors into their state-owned companies to kickstart their spluttering economy. And uh, the plans released by the Communist Party's Central Committee and State Council, which was reported by the Xinhua News Agency, which didn't go into too much detail, shed, said the plans included introducing mixed ownership by bringing in private investment. Now, the moves won't be forced. The Chinese government hasn't set a timetable, but Xinhua's reported that uh, decisive results are expected by 2020. Now, basically, private investors are going to be encouraged to buy state in state firms, purchase convertible bonds issued by state firms or swap shares with them. And oil, gas, electricity and railways and telecommunications has been identified as sectors to attract private investors. The Chinese government manages 111 companies and local governments own and manages 25,000 state-owned companies and they employ 7.5 million people. So that's a huge sector, Gary. It's an enormous sector. The, it's a sta- the smallest state-owned companies are a bit of a worry because there's a lot of corruption in there. Now, Josh Frydenberg is flagging that... Uh, the government is going to take a higher GST to the election as part of its campaign. And Deloitte, meanwhile, has unveiled proposals that would see the GST rising to as much as 15% while fully compensating the lowest income earners and cutting the company tax rate to 25%. Now, the Deloitte model puts forward two scenarios. The first is where GST exemptions remain in place, but the rates increase to 15%, generating an extra $152 billion in revenue over four years. And the second increases the rate to 12.5%, but brings fresh food into the net. Both models would have one quarter to one third of the increased GST revenue and back as compensation for lower income earners. And Deloitte says the changes to GST would raise about $30 billion a year and the 30% corporate tax rate would be cut to 25%. The second of those is very much the New Zealand model and John Key got that through without any problem at all. Let's, let's take a look at that. Now to uh, corporate news and oil search has officially rejected Woodside's unsolicited $11.7 billion all-script approach, saying it's highly opportunistic, grossly undervaluing the company. And oil search feels a 13% premium is too little. It wants something in the order of more in the order of 25 to 30% to bring it back to the negotiating table. And it says it's open to offers. So now we're waiting to see what Woodside says. Now, Foxtel's bid for a 15% stake in Network 10 has run into a bit of trouble. It's been held up after the ACCC expressed concern about that the move could increase the amount of sport shown exclusively on the pay TV platform. The ACCC is also worried the Foxtel's financial muscle could give a 10 a big advantage over its free-to-air rival when it comes to sport broadcasting rights and it's asked for more information on in reaction to the proposed $77 million deal and it's set a September 28 deadline for submissions. So let's wait and see what happens there. Foxtel's audience isn't all that huge but it's a very big player in sport. Also, a very interesting tech venture fund has been set up. Super funds have joined up with 96 tech entrepreneurs to create Australia's biggest ever technology startup venture capital fund worth 200 
hundred million bucks. And it's backed by two major superannuation funds, Host Plus Super and First State Super, and the entrepreneurs including Atlassian co-founder Mike Cannon-Brooks, Aconex co-founder Lou Jasper and Rob Philpot, Redbubble founder Martin Hosking, founder investor and freelancer.com Simon Closen, and co-founder of Retail Me Not Bevan Clark. And it's managed by Blackbird Ventures. It will target Australian tech companies that would have otherwise headed off to Silicon Valley, New York, London or Tel Aviv to get funding and support. And the two super funds are providing 145 million the tech entrepreneurs are putting the remaining 65 million dollars there i think that's really good it's excellent and and may i say long overdue really i think really is i think it really is and i hope it really gives the tech sector a yeah. big kickstart and and the the entrepreneurs backing it are pretty good quality you know atlassian atlassian and martin hosking for example is a very smart man Absolutely. I mean, Redbubble is really something. Excellent. Yep. Yeah. And finally, Gary, uh, consumer confidence has fallen to its second lowest level since the global financial crisis because of volatility in global share markets and weak local economic data. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index fell 1.3% last week to 105.3, following a sharp 5.8% decline the week before. And ANZ Chief Economist Warren Hogan reckons the index, measuring expectations about Australia's economic future, has hit a new seven-year low. But it might have picked up in the last couple of days. Well, well, let's just wait and see, Gary. Okay. Yeah. And that's it for this week, Gary. Excellent, Leon. That's good. And for next week? Next week, we've got a fantastic interview with analyst Tim Buckley, and he's going to be talking to us all about Adani's Carmichael mine, and it's not looking good. And the crookedness in coal. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.